2: Welcome back, Tom Harvin here with you, and on the line with us, our old buddy, the Executive Director of SocialSecurityWorks.org, Alex Lawson, also StrengthenSocialSecurity.org, Law 202 on Twitter, or SSWorks also on Twitter. Alex, I take it you're not live from the Four Seasons landscaping, although I've seen the picture of you guys there without the hair dye running down your face like Rudy did. So welcome back to the program. Tell us what's going on with Andrew Saul, first of all, uh, after you want to clear up the uh, Four Seasons thing.
3: I'm just impressed, Tom, with you. I always am, but I was looking for a way to bring up the fact that I had just visited this landmark in Philadelphia because while i was there there were two other people there who are huge fans of yours and somewhat knew my work because of your show tom so i thought oh, that cool. was amazing
2: yeah that's great so tell us about andrew saul yeah the last time you were on a couple of months ago we were talking about how trump put these two guys saul and david black in charge of social security and medicare with the explicit purpose of basically destroying these programs. What's the latest on this?
3: Fired. That's the latest. And it's wonderful news for all of us. You're exactly right. And as your listeners know, you know, better than many people, Trump's thing was to put saboteurs in place, you know, DeJoy at the Postal Service. His whole job is to wreck the U.S. Postal Service. Andrew Saul's job at the Social Security Administration was to wreck the Social Security Administration. And that's why there's unprecedented opposition or push to oust him from that position, coming from the chairs of the Social Security committees in the House, in the Senate, Senator Sanders, Senator Warren. It's Senator Brown and Representative John Larson are the chairs. The unions representing basically the entire workforce, the disability community, the seniors community, everyone was saying get rid of these guys. It's worse than the fox in charge of the hen house. It's worse than that. And it had dragged on for so long that it it was very bad. This was a problem for Joe Biden, but he was sort of able to ignore it a bit until we increased the volume together
2: by telling this story. So the question that I have is, I, you know, I, I saw a CNN report this morning. Actually, I saw a report about a CNN report that andrew Saul showed up for work this morning at the social security administration was that to clear his desk out or is he actually going to defy joe biden on this
3: so the thing is tom the man never showed up to work in the first place which is what adds extra comedy to this it's been reported you can read about it he literally never showed up to baltimore to his office so he doesn't have an office to clear out he is trying to contest this but Uh, He said, I'm going to log on on Monday. And I'm like, sir, you don't know how to log on to your own computer. You've never done it. And they uh, turned off his access. So he Ah. is actually saying that he is going to pursue this, that he's going to sue. But it's the Supreme Court who just ruled that, in fact, uh, his boss, President Biden, can fire him. So this is just it's a it's a Trump tantrum where he's cut from the exact same cloth and that's what he's doing.
2: So what kind of damage in the four years that Saul and Black were there, more or less, what kind of damage have they actually done to Social Security and Medicare that we know of that needs remediation?
3: It's so much, Tom, and and, you know, I do enjoy the fact that they were fired. I'm happy about it, and so I'm smiling, but it's Mm -hmm. important to remember why we were fighting so hard. And so I got more emails just this weekend One was from a mother whose son had lost his uh, disability benefits, a disabled child. So in the middle of the pandemic, he lost his benefits and it put the entire family at risk of losing their house. And this woman wrote this book length email to me because she didn't know where else to turn. So I'm trying to connect her with people who might be able to help on that. That is what Andrew Saul and David Black did. They created rules and regulations and, most importantly, a culture at the Social Security Administration that was antagonistic to the people it was supposed to serve. A culture that said it was a good thing to deny benefits, to take benefits away from people who've earned these benefits. Uh, And what that did is it endangered people across this country, and oftentimes the most vulnerable people in this country, in the middle of a pandemic, Tom. And I I don't want to get all ragey about it, but it's important to remember that that's what we were fighting. That's what these goons uh, were put in place to do. And we have a lot of work uh, to not only fix what they have broken to change the culture back to one of service, where if you earn your benefits, you get the benefits uh, that you've earned, Uh, where Social Security is the rock that we can all count on. We need to ensure that that's never challenged, uh, and that is a huge task. But it's not the only thing we have to do, because we also have to expand Social Security. It's not just enough to get rid of these reactionary forces we have to push our positive, progressive agenda and expand this system for everybody in this country.
2: Yeah. Amen. Amen. So uh, who has uh, President Biden put in place of Saul and Black? And do they require Senate confirmation?
3: They do. There's an acting commissioner right now, Kalolo, who was put in place a bit earlier to be a policy, the head of the policy. She basically took the hatchet man of David Black and Andrew Saug, a guy named Mark Warshawski. She took his job. She's fantastic. She's a social security expert, I do think can go a ways toward mending some of the problems that they created. But the position does need Senate confirmation, and I think the White House is is going to have to uh, look and find somebody who can actually take this forward into the future and build a social security system for everybody at an even expanded place than it is right now
2: amen social security is the website alex lawson is the executive director uh, a law 202 is personal twitter handle ss works is the uh, the company one strengthen social security.org as well thank you alex
1: thanks tom this is the
2: tom hartman program Back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Is it time to trigger the nuclear option? I've got my rant for you. Pam in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind?
0: Hey, Tom, thank you so much. I'm such a huge fan of your show and your writing, so thank you for having me on. Um, Quick question. I was hoping to ask Alex about... I'm a recent state employee of Colorado, and so I no longer pay into Social Security. I pay into their PARA plan. And so my question is, how many other states do this? You know, have their state employees pay into a pension plan rather than Social Security? And is this one of those you know, slow killing of Social Security that Republicans have put into place in these states in order to undermine Social Security? And finally, having paid into Social Security for 30 years, then do you get Social Security in these state plans? Hope that makes
2: sense. Yeah, I don't know the answers to your questions, Pam. I, I, I think I do, but I'm reluctant to say so for fear that I'm wrong. I do know that the Social Security program when it initially started was very restricted, didn't cover a lot there were lots and lots of people that were it didn't cover including state and federal employees and including like the railroads you know people who work for the railroads and whether this was you know the genesis of this and, and how it plays out i'm just not sure of pam so i'm sorry i don't have the answer to that question we you know sometime in the next month or so so particularly if the summer slows down a little bit we need to get alex on and just do a good q a on Social Security and, and Medicare issues. Pam, I'm sorry, I don't have any answer, but thank you for the call. It's nice to hear from you. I promised you a rant. I, I let, me, let me at least get into it here right now. And then uh, this is, it's my, my piece over at HartmanReport.com. It's titled Time to Trigger the Nuclear Option. And the nuclear option, of course, is this Is this hole in the filibuster or is blowing it's the process of blowing a hole in the filibuster the filibuster started back in eight well arguably it was set up in 1806 when vice president aaron burr suggested that congress make a small that the senate make a small change in their rules for ending debate it didn't really get used until 1937 when john c calhoun the father of the confederacy came into into the senate and Uh, The year earlier, in 1836, the House had passed what, what is referred to as the gag rule, that no member of the House could speak of slavery on the floor of the House. Over in the Senate, the way they handled that was if you brought any legislation that had to do with ending slavery or modifying slavery in any way, then it would be filibustered. And what the filibuster did, starting in 1837, is it stopped all Senate activity. Just shut the Senate down. And so the only way to stop the filibuster... From 1837 until 1917, the only way to stop the filibuster was to withdraw the legislation, which is what they did. And it was used principally prior to the Civil War for legislation having to do with slavery, post-Civil War for mostly civil rights legislation, until 1917. In 1917, uh, Woodrow Wilson was trying to prepare this country for war. Our merchant ships were being attacked by German submarines, and Wilson wanted Congress to pass a law appropriating money to help the merchant marine fleet, basically the commercial shippers, uh, put depth charges on the sides of their boats so that they could drop them into the water and blow up submarines if they were under attack. It would have involved some money. And there was this guy by the name of Kitchen who was Fulman, Claude Kitchen was his name. He was a Democrat in the House from North Carolina. And he was a fanatic white supremacist. And he was basically still fighting the Civil War. And he didn't want any more money to go to Wall Street because back then they were still blaming Wall Street for the Civil War in the South. I mean, they still do in the South. And so he filibustered this in the Senate. He and a, a small friend, you know, a bunch of his friends which led to the march 5th 1917 new york times front page all caps screaming headline arms ship bill beaten president issues a statement saying we are made helpless and contemptible without remedy until the senate amends its rules 33 senators already pledged to end obstruction and you know and uh, woodrow wilson president wilson said the senate of the united states is the only legislative body in the world which cannot act when its majority is ready for action a little group of willful men Representing no opinion but their own, have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. So, one of the senators, a guy from Montana, his name was Thomas Walsh, he came up with an idea. And he said basically, the Constitution says that there's some things that the Senate has to do. And so, we have to be able to break a filibuster so that we can conduct the business of the Senate. So, let's make a rule that if two thirds of the senators vote to stop the filibuster, the bill doesn't have to be withdrawn. The filibuster just dies. And uh, about a week later, the Senate, ad- this is in March of, of, of 1917. About a week later, the Senate adopted that bill. They changed the bill. And that's where the supermajority came from. It's been changed over the years. Now it's down to 60 votes. It was 66 votes for a while, or the equivalent of it, 1917. And he called that the constitutional option because it meant that the senate could continue to do the business that it was mandated to do under the constitution fast forward to nineteen eighty and in in nineteen eighty senate majority leader howard baker said we really need to uh, take this constitutional amendment and use it to exclude taxing and spending legislation And so, thus we got reconciliation, budget reconciliation. I'll finish the story on the other side of the break, because it's a really fascinating one. And and in fact, I'm just going to leave it at that. Just pause that thought. We'll pick it up in five or six minutes. I'll finish this thing. It'll take a few minutes, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. We'll be back. It's time to consider the nuclear option. It's over at HartmanReport.com if you want to check it out. It's got all the links to all these stories I'm telling you about.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan Robinson. This is from the introduction. In the last few years, U.S. politics has been completely upended. The presidency of Donald Trump, which took politicians and commentators by total surprise, shattered a number of Washington orthodoxies. Very few experts thought that a loquacious, loutish reality TV star was capable of rising to the nation's highest office. But they had misjudged political reality and forgotten the cardinal rule. Anything can happen. Trump's improbable rise to power was not the only political irregularity to occur over the last several years. While Trump was defeating the most powerful figures in the country's two major political parties, another unexpected phenomenon was occurring. The rise of a new radicalism on the left. When Bernie Sanders began his campaign for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination, no one expected him to pose a serious challenge to Hillary Clinton. Clinton was the consensus choice of the party establishment. Influential Democrats openly said it was her turn. Sanders was in the race as a protest candidate. Not only was he considered a marginal figure in Washington, lacking both connections and funding, but he did not have any of the characteristics that traditionally had made one electable. He was old. He was from a tiny state known for hippies and cheese. He was not particularly photogenic, polished, or popular. And he was an avowed socialist in a country that it had a half-century Cold War between good American capitalism and evil Soviet socialism. It was not, however, a year in which the traditional criteria of electability would matter especially much. Sanders, perhaps as much to his own surprise as anybody else's, quickly attracted a significant following. His radical message, stingingly critical of the existing Democratic Party, resonated strongly with progressives who felt let down by Obama and viewed Clinton as part of an uninspiring and possibly corrupt political dynasty. When the first primary contest came around, February 2016 Iowa caucuses, Sanders achieved a shockingly strong result, coming close to beating Clinton outright. As Sanders began to fill stadiums with crowds, attracting a highly visible and well-organized following, it quickly became clear that the race would not be the coronation that Clinton had anticipated. Clinton ultimately won the Democratic nomination, but it took a bruising fight. Sanders was no mere protest candidate. He was a serious competitor who won 23 contests to Clinton's 34. While Clinton received over 16 million votes across the various primaries, Sanders achieved a remarkable 13 million. It was surprising enough that a socialist candidate could be anything more than a gadfly in a major party-nominating contest. It was downright stunning that such a candidate could rack up nearly two dozen primary victories against one of the most experienced and well-connected members of the Democratic Party. Sanders' unexpected rise to prominence represented an extraordinary shift in the political landscape. The nearest precedent was Eugene Debs' 1920 presidential run on the Socialist Party ticket. Debs achieved nearly a million votes despite being in prison for defying the World War I draft. But even Debs didn't pose a serious electoral threat to the dominant parties, receiving only 3% of the general election vote. Sanders, who once recorded a spoken word Eugene Debs tribute album and kept a portrait of Debs in his office while mayor of Burlington, Vermont, achieved a far greater measure of success. He may not have started the political revolution that he often spoke of, but he came relatively close to poaching the presidential nomination from the party elite's pre-selected candidate. The Sanders campaign was fueled by millennials whose dissatisfaction with mainstream Democrats made them highly responsive to Sanders' progressive alternative. Clinton may have had more supporters than Sanders overall, but young people of all races and genders preferred Sanders over Clinton by large margins. With the exception of Lena Dunham, it is hard to find many people under 30 who had much enthusiasm for Clinton, a candidate they associated with Wall Street cronyism and the Iraq disaster. Sanders' success with millennials, while unanticipated by pollsters, did not occur purely because of Sanders' political skill. It happened because a revolt had been brewing among young progressives for years, as they had steadily grown more and more alienated from the Democratic Party mainstream. Ever since the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011, young people in the United States had been becoming increasingly radicalized, weighted down with debt, paying through the nose for health insurance, unable to afford to have kids, and frustrated by an undemocratic political system that implements the policy preferences of rich elites, millennials were both frustrated and tired. Sanders came along at just the right moment. They had been waiting for someone to say what was on their minds, that the economic and political systems were unfair at their core and needed a drastic overhaul. But the Sanders campaign was just the start. Joe Crowley had been in Congress for 20 years and was one of the highest ranking members of the House Democrats. He was considered a serious contender for the party leadership and known in his New York City district as a well-connected part of the local Democratic machine. He was the sort of backroom deal-making congressman whose influence is disproportionate to his name recognition. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not an important figure in the Democratic Party, far from it. She was a 28-year-old bartender and activist who had once interned for Ted Kennedy and had worked for Bernie Sanders' campaign. A member of the Democratic Socialists of America, She was considered the longest of long shots in her primary contest against Crowley. Crowley had endorsements from powerful political organizations like the AFL-CIO. Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan J. Robinson. So I was describing to you how Woodrow Wilson overcame the filibuster you know, with a little help from this one senator, Thomas Walsh, who came up with the constitutional options. So let's let two thirds of the senators overcome the filibuster. Then in, in 1980, Howard Baker was the Senate Majority Leader, and he added what we today refer to as budget reconciliation. And his rationale was that because spending money is part of the constitutional requirement of the Senate, that you know within certain limits congress should be able to tax raise taxes or lower taxes for that matter in fact it was being you know howard baker wanted to use it to lower taxes and and change spending levels without facing a filibuster with just a simple majority and and in fact this uh, this budget reconciliation was used aggressively by the reagan administration in in the in the years following this 1980 change so then, in 2003, when uh, Democrats were filibustering George W. Bush's judges, uh, then-majority leader Trent Lott came up and said, uh, you know, this, this thing, we're not going to call it the constitutional option anymore. We're going to call it the nuclear option. And it should be expanded to include judges. Uh, he didn't get his way, although the, they did start referring to it as the nuclear option instead of the constitutional option in 2003. And, but it wasn't until November 21st, 2013, that Harry Reid changed the Senate rules to say that, and this is because McConnell was filibustering all of, uh, virtually all of uh, Barack Obama, President Obama's uh, judicial nominees. And so he said, no, you can't filibuster judicial nominees anymore, that's in the Constitution, that's something we're supposed to do. And then in 2017, in April of 2017, Mitch McConnell did the same thing with the Supreme Court after the Democrats said that they were going to filibuster Neil Gorsuch. So now we have two holes in the filibuster. Well, three, arguably. The first one is that you can overcome a filibuster with a two-thirds vote. That's 1917. Then you've got the uh, 2013, uh, or then you've got the uh, uh, 1980, You you can do budget reconciliation. You can overcome a filibuster if it's just about taxing and spending. And then we have the 2013, 2017 holes that you can also overcome a filibuster if it has to do with judicial nominations for federal benches or the Supreme Court. So I'm saying it's time to add now another one, a final hole, as it were, in the filibuster. And that is that if a a piece of legislation comes forward that has to do with voting rights, that that should not be subject to filibuster either. And the reason why is because voting is the foundation of everything. I mean, this is, this is what Thomas Paine said about voting in 1795. He said, the true and only basis of representation, of representative government, is equality of rights. Every man has a right to one vote. To take away this right is to reduce a man to slavery, for slavery considers, consists in being subject to the will of another, and he that has not a vote in the election of representatives is in this case. The proposal, therefore, to disenfranchise any class of men is as criminal as the proposal to take away property. Hamilton, of course, was also an opponent of slavery. Uh, So and then Jim Clyburn, Jim Clyburn just came out and said, you know, we need to get rid of the filibuster for constitutional issues, just as we've done it for budget issues. If you want to argue how high a wall should be or whether you should build it, those are issues that are political. But nobody should filibuster anybody's constitutional rights, said Congressman Jim Clyburn. He said, we've done it for the budget and a reconciliation. And uh, he said, it's much better word to apply to constitutional issues than it is to the budget. I completely agree with him. I think it's time for Senator Schumer to say, you know, the right to vote is in the Constitution. Voting rights are something that we will no longer allow to be filibustered. Now, I realize it's a two-edged sword because if they pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, then when the Republicans take control of the Senate and the House, and there's a possibility of that happening, then they could simply pass a law saying, we're going to take that Texas law or the Georgia law, and you know, I mean, they could just reverse it, right? But let them try. Let them try. I'm willing to take the chance. I think the politics here are on our side. I think the, you know, what is right is on our side. You know, I don't see this as something that we should be uh, wringing our hands over. I think they need to get on with it. Uh, oh, I've got this uh, quick, quick geeky science for you. This is fascinating. You know, everybody is like, I've got to walk 10,000 steps. You know where that came from? I, I remember when, you know, it was uh, our Secretary of Defense, uh, Mr. Rumsfeld. He walks 10,000 steps every day. The 10,000 steps came from a Japanese company in the 1960s. The company was called uh, Yamasa Tokei. And they produced the first commercial pedometer. A pedometer measures how many steps you take. They named this thing the MonPoK, which translates as the 10,000 step meter. And it would like bing when you hit 10,000 steps. And it was just a marketing strategy. There was no science behind it. So how many steps should you take? Gabby Landsverk is writing about this over at Medium.com. And she quotes a study, a 2019 study on older women found that those who walked 4,400 steps a day had lower mortality rates over four years than those who walked the least, which was around 2,700 steps a day. The reduction in risk, she writes, appears to max out at around 7,500 steps a day, which would be what, around three, maybe four miles. No additional benefits to walking 10,000 or more daily steps, at least in terms of things like heart disease, well, mortality in general. As you walk, you know our lymphatic system does not have a pump like our circulatory system does. It doesn't. There's no heartbeat for the lymph system that cleans our body of toxins. That's taking steps. Every time you take a step, you know all through your body, all hundred and some odd lymph nodes go drip, drip. You know, and the lymph starts moving through your body and cleans you up. That the only way to do that is with walking. And so, I mean, there's all kinds of cool stuff about this, and but it turns out that the main benefit of walking 10,000 steps a day is the exercise will cause you to lose weight, but that's about it. So no need, to, uh, no need to walk 10,000 steps a day, but you do need to walk a couple thousand. You do need to be walking at least a mile or two every single day. And I can tell you from personal experience, the improvement in mental acuity, of physical stamina, of just feeling good is massive. If you just walk a couple of miles every day, just go out and walk six, eight, ten blocks. You know, put on a pair of headphones and listen to a book on tape if you have to, or uh, you know, or listen to the birds and and you know, enjoy yourself. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls. Nicholas in uh, San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas, what's on your mind today?
1: Thomas, two things. I hope you'll address because they seem to be very important to me. The one, the first is, is rather broad. I was just reading something in the New York Times, I guess it was this morning, Something about Tucker Carlson and how influential he's become. In the, he's the number one host apparently now on Fox. He's outrun Hannity right. even. And they, they said he only has 2.4 million listeners or viewers in right. evening. How is it possible in a country of 300-plus million people that someone who has 2, two million followers is so influential? And a second quick question, which is very important to me, and I think to you, what is your read on what is going on in Cuba? I am distraught, and I smell a rat.
2: Well, what's going on in Cuba, Nicholas, is that the Trump administration tightened the screws on the U.S. embargo. And to the point that a lot of cruise ships that don't even stop in the U.S. are no longer going to Cuba. Right. The economic crisis has gotten really bad, and economic crises do put people on the streets. And the solution yes. to this is to reverse the Trump policies. It's just, in my mind, it's just that simple. Liberalizing liberalizing and it. and, and, the, embargo. and yeah. the
4: embargo,
1: and And there's no reporting on the fact that the counter demonstrations are significantly larger.
2: Oh, that's interesting. No, I haven't seen that reporting. Yeah, uh, well, But the bottom line doesn't... is, the Cuban government was moving in the right direction until Trump came along, and now they're having to deal with reactionary forces. Um, your heart. with regard your to tucker heart. you know it's the echo effect it's the right wing the echo chamber it, it, it all gets amplified nicholas i gotta run but thanks for the call
1: you're listening to the tom hartman program
2: also an audience of two and a half million on a day could translate to you know well over 10 million over the course of a week occasionally check that out I, you'd have to look at those numbers val in fresno california hey val is the heat hitting you guys there
4: Oh, yes, Tom. (laughs) This weekend was pretty brutal. I got a two-part question for you. I don't know. I'd like to see what you think. There's any hope for people to start trusting the government, because I think that's a big big issue. I mean, with a lot of people, they don't trust the vaccines, first of all, now the government, and then this whole thing about going door-to-door. I was hearing stuff, too. I I listened a little bit of Fox News yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so, yeah, you're right. Um, the
2: The main reason why people don't trust government in the United States right now is because we have all seen stories and heard stories and and just can see the evidence right in front of us that politicians are owned by very powerful and wealthy interests. The majority of Americans want a national health care system. It's not happening. The majority of Americans want free college. It's not happening. The majority of Americans want Social Security and Medicare to be strengthened, not weakened. It's not happening. The majority of Americans want rapid action on climate change. It's not happening. The majority of Americans want a substantial improvement in our infrastructure in a way that's green. It's not happening. And in every case, it's not happening because you've got a billionaire or an industry associated with a group of billionaires who have been pouring money down the throats of politicians. Uh, You know, there's there's three lobbyists in Washington, D.C. for every single politician just in the pharma industry and the medical industry. And people know that. And what brought us this, by the way, was the Supreme Court, a series of Supreme Court decisions, particularly the 76 and 78 Buckley and Bellotti decisions, and then the Citizens United decision in 2010 that doubled down on it. So if we want to restore trust in government, we have to do two things. Number one, Biden and Congress actually have to get some things done, and I think that means blowing up the filibuster. And number two, as part of getting things done, they have to reverse these Supreme Court decisions. And there's a variety of ways to go about it, or at least work around them. And HR1, actually, the For the People Act, does some of that. It actually has a public funding of elections provision and elections funding transparency provisions, which will certainly yeah. be challenged at the Supreme Court. But you know, it's it's a start, and I think that's what we have to do.
4: I, yeah, I, I agree. What do we do about my whole thing is what's gotten us in this where we are? Is right wing radio? We got so much. I've lived in a conservative stronghold, and nobody wants this. I'm like the only guy who's liberal or progressive, and it's yeah. It's a challenge. You know
2: this. Yeah, that's that's yeah. one we've talked about many okay. times in the past. Yeah, I really do think we need to bring back local ownership rules for radio, and then you'll have more of a free market and there'll be a marketplace of ideas. well i got to run. Thanks. Michael in, uh, in Sweden? Hey, Michael. You are in Sweden. Hi, thank you. Yes, I am. Well, thank you for uh, calling and watching us on YouTube. What's up?
5: Thank you. Uh, I uh, had, uh, I remember I called, the last time I called uh, Professor Hartman, uh, you mentioned uh, how um, complex it was to do your uh, taxes in the United States. And I realized uh, after we uh, hang up that everything in the U.S. is so complicated, so there is always someone that can profit from the complexity. That's correct.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's the, uh, the all the attempts to simplify the tax code or simplify the process of filing your annual taxes. I don't know how it works in Sweden. I believe it's Norway. They mail you their belief of, you know, they do your taxes for you and then send it to you and say, does this look right? And you check it off and sign it and mail it back. How does it work in Sweden? But I, oh, to, yeah. to your point, it, all of the efforts to, to, to change that here in the United States have been blocked by by the, the, the tax preparing industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry here in the United States. How's it working in Sweden? Yeah,
5: no, me, yeah, I'm here, they, you know, they do it for you, and I got you know we, get, we have this government ID app. You get it in the app, you log in, and for me, it, it, it takes every year 30 seconds and not more. And, 30 seconds uh, and to do your taxes? Yeah, for real. <laughs> wow, I want that. Uh, but, uh, but the reason uh, I also called today uh, was that I want to share something with you that uh, and the listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. I am uh, very sensitive to noise. And when I moved into my new apartment, uh, which is not really that noisy, but for me, who wakes up by the slightest noise. Uh, so uh, when I moved in, I logged in to my government ID app. And one week later, uh, I got $20,000 for free from the government to sample my home. And that is, and, and, and when you have the highest uh, voting turnout in the world, that is what you get, uh, real FDR freedom.
2: Wow. Uh, and so this is because you presumably have a medical condition that you notified the government about, and they responded by saying, okay, we will help modify your home to, to accommodate that condition? This isn't just, you weren't just saying, hey, I, I, I just you know, feel kind of idiosyncratic today, and so I'm going to complain?
5: though no, I have HDHD uh, and autism, mm. uh, but uh, when, you know, when someone says we are from the government and we are here to help, that's a great thing. Yes, apparently uh, in Sweden. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, it's and also, the, you know, this important with voting because here uh, it's, you know, easier to vote, to not to vote, and in areas where uh, people are less likely to vote, they make it, you know, ten times easier. And, How and uh, w- well, <laughs> here's when I was younger. Um, I was a bit ignorant, and I I I didn't want to vote, but I never succeeded because it was you know it was impossible to avoid. You were showing up you know, in in your face. I couldn't go nowhere without a major you know place where where the, 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 the it is like when you're a tourist at tourist restaurants. They you know they do everything to get you into voting. Ah, <laughs> uh,
2: so <laughs> and, it was like a a, a, a national. PR campaign essentially to please please go vote
5: exactly and if you for some reason can't vote you know they uh, go to the voting place or or mail they come to you and uh, set up a booth for you Um, and you know it's just. The government, uh, the voting government Is very independent and they want everybody to. But here's the thing, Professor All Scandinavian countries are great But, you know, I think the Sweden is the best and, and the reason for that is that In the 70s and the 80s When uh, we had our own brilliant Charismatic Reagan But the difference was that Olof Palme Was a, a social democrat and pro-FDR And that is also why I think That uh, your next book after The Hidden History of Big Brother Should be The Hidden History of the Sweden model
2: oh interesting that was all of palma was he he was the guy
5: he was the guy and i was thinking i was going to send louise a bunch a bunch of stuff with him and Uh translations and uh, so you can you can check it out if you want
2: i'd love to see it uh you know i've I've,
5: killed actually
2: i remember his name i just don't remember a great deal about him i mean that was many years ago but that's that's marvelous michael thank you for sharing that with us Thank you, Professor. And 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 yeah, and, and thank you for watching us there in Sweden. It's can, great time. Can, can
5: I say just one, one, one last thing? If you I'm certainly may. may. Thank you to to all the seven million young listeners of the show. uh, Go deep into personal development and then read all the Tom Hartman books. And third, download the Tom Hartman app to enjoy with your morning coffee. (laughs) And and fourth, run for office. (laughs) Run for office. And when you run for office, be like the psychopaths like Mitch McConnell, but do it for the good of the people. I wish I was a citizen. This is what I would do. Yeah.
2: Run for office is a big one, and, and participate, you know, and, and, and show up at your local, even if you're a Republican, show up at the local Republican Party. If you're a Democrat, show up at the, yeah, I mean, get involved with the political activity here in the United States. It's, we have such a, a lack of a sense of citizenship, and I know in the Scandinavian countries, I'm not as familiar with Sweden. I am a more familiar with Norway because my grandfather came from there, and, and you know, I have uh, relatives there and whatnot, and, and I've been there many times but there's a sense of we're all in this together that the government is us and we are the government in those countries that that has just been beaten down in this country since the 80s exactly yeah and so. i
5: hope and hope i hope you get to a point where you know politics is so boring in sweden because everything almost works so i, I hope you will oh, also really? get that big Yeah, I mean, I don't follow politics, you know, it's all about, you know, nothing, everything works. Uh, And uh, Uh, Martin Luther King, when he was here 50 years ago, he said, I have a dream that the U.S. would be as Sweden. I still believe that. There you go.
2: There you go. Michael, thank you. It's nice to hear from you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the great story. We'll be right back. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from One Nation Under God by Kevin Cruz, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, a book that was very kindly gifted to us by Scott Carter, who was recently a guest on our program. A wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, At heart, this book seeks to challenge Americans' assumptions, this is from the introduction, about the basic relationship between religion and politics in their nation's history. For decades now, liberals and conservatives have been locked in an intractable struggle over an ostensibly simple question. Is the United States a Christian nation? This debate, largely focused on endlessly parsing the intent of the founding fathers, has ultimately generated more heat than light. Like most scholars, I believe the historical record is fairly clear about the founding generation's preference for what Thomas Jefferson memorably described as the separation, the wall of separation between church and state, a belief the founders spelled out repeatedly in both public statements and private correspondence. This scholarly consensus, though, has done little to shift public opinion. If anything, the country has more tightly embraced religion in the public sphere and in political culture in recent decades. And so this book begins with a different premise. It sets aside the question of whether the founders intended America to be a Christian nation and instead asks why so many contemporary Americans came to believe that this country always has been and always should be a Christian nation. As the story of the early months of the Eisenhower administration makes clear, part of the answer, though not all of it, can be found in the mid-1950s, when Americans underwent an incredible transformation in how they understood the role of religion in public life. Other historians have paid attention to the establishment of new religious mottos and ceremonies in those years, but most have misplaced their origins. Without exception, exception, the works on the religious revival of the Eisenhower era attribute the rise of public religion solely to the Cold War. According to this conventional wisdom, as the United States fell into an anti-communist panic, its leaders suddenly began to emphasize the nation's religious traits as a means of distinguishing us from the godless communism of the Soviet Union. But as this book argues, the post war revolution in America's religious identity had its roots not in the foreign policy of the 1950s, but rather in domestic economics and politics of the 1930s and early 40s. Decades before Eisenhower's inaugural prayers, corporate titans enlisted conservative clergymen in an effort to promote new political arguments embodied in the phrase, quote, freedom under God, end quote. As the private correspondence and public claims of the men leading this charge makes clear, this new ideology was designed to defeat the state power that its architects feared most, not the Soviet regime in Moscow, but Franklin T. Roosevelt's New Deal administration in Washington. With ample funding from major corporations, prominent industrialists and business lobbies, such as the National Association of Manufacturers, And the u.s chamber of commerce in the 1930s and 40s these new evangelists for free enterprise promoted a vision best characterized as christian libertarianism by the late 1940s and early 1950s this ideology had won converts including religious leaders such as billy graham and abraham veriday and conservative icons ranging from former president herbert hoover to future president ronald reagan the new conflation of faith freedom and free enterprise then moved to center stage in the 1950s under Eisenhower's watch. Though his administration gave religion an unprecedented role in the public sphere, it essentially echoed and amplified the work of countless private organizations and ordinary citizens who had long been active in the, co- in the same cause. Corporate leaders remained central. Leading industrialists and large business organizations bankrolled major efforts to promote the role of religion in public life. The top advertising agency of the age, the J. Walter Thompson Company, encouraged Americans to attend churches and synagogues through an unprecedented Religion in American Life ad campaign. Even Hollywood got into the act with the director, Cecil B. DeMille, helping erect literally thousands of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments across our nation as part of a promotional campaign for his blockbuster film of the same name. Inundated with urgent calls to embrace faith, Americans did just that. The percentage of Americans who claim membership in a church had been fairly low across the 19th century, that it had slowly increased from just 16% in 1850 to 36% in 1900. In the early decades of the 20th century, the percentages plateaued, remaining at 43% in 1910 and 20, and then moving up slightly to 47% in 1930, 49% in 1940. In the decade and a half after the Second World War, however, the percentage of Americans who belonged to a church or synagogue suddenly soared, reaching 57% in 1950 and then peaking at 69% at the end of that decade an all-time high. While this religious revival was remarkable, the almost complete lack of opposition to it was even more so. A few clergymen complained that this new public form of faith seemed a bit superficial, but they ultimately approved of anything that encouraged church attendance. In political terms, both parties welcomed the popular new drive to link piety and patriotism. The only thing they fought over was which side deserved more credit for it. Legal scholars likewise claimed there was nothing to fear in these changes, arguing that the adoption of phrases and mottos such as, in God we trust, or one nation under God, did not impact America's commitment to the separation of church and state. Sub- such acts of ceremonial deism were, according to Yale Law School Dean Eugene Rostow, nothing but harmless ornamentation, so conventional and uncontroversial as to be constitutional. The Supreme Court sanctioned most of these changes too. Even the outspokenly liberal Justice William O. Douglas concluded in 1952 that public invocations of faith were ironclad proof that Americans were a religious people whose institutions presupposed a supreme being. Wayne in Seattle. Hey Wayne, what's on your mind today?
4: Howdy, Tom. You're my favorite guy. I listen to you every day Thank when you. I can. Thank you You know the words of jesus the good words he doesn't have any bad words but i mean those things are just amazing but the thing is powerful people have used religion to control people all through the centuries and now like people have two jobs to have to own a house and they got to make some good cash too to do it you know they got football to watch and soccer to watch and they don't have time to go to church and they don't want to pay the church 10 percent of their income which they don't have to spend because you know times are hard so you're saying wayne that
2: the that the destruction of the middle class that reagan initiated in 1981 and has you know moved at least 10 percent of americans out of the middle class and into the working poor that that's the main thing that has gutted or has reduced the number of people who claim that they are christians from over 80 percent in seventy seventy six, I think it was, to uh, only forty four percent now.
4: Well, I think people have just got clear minds now. They know that this phony religion thing, you know, Jesus and the Bible. I don't, I don't say they're phony, but yeah. these phony churches where they make millions and millions of dollars in old Rolls Royces and all this other crap, you know, they're just sick of it. You
2: yeah. know? yeah. The guy's saying, "Send me money. I need to buy a new private jet." I mean, that actually exactly. happened, you know, two years ago. It's like. I
4: mean, I think they've just given up, you know, because, it's like, you can lie to me once and then shame on me, lie to me twice, and shame on myself. So, yeah. I think they're tired of being lied to.
2: Yeah, I get it, and I'm with you. Thank you very much, Wayne, for the call. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's up? Hey, it relates to Donald Trump being the boy who cried wolf. Mm-hmm. And Republicans always running around claiming that they
6: are very religious, but they are the ones who's, who are telling the most lies, including Trump with his 30,000 lies. And you get people listening to these guys and knowing they're lying, if they were religious and they're thinking, these are the religious people, well, then what am I?
2: So you think Trump helped kill Christianity as well?
6: He's helping. And along with all of these Republicans who are getting up there and claiming that there was fraud in the last election and everybody knows these guys are lying.
2: Right. And there's no such thing as global warming and all these other frauds that they peddle. And,
6: And then basically what they're doing is they're teaching the religious people to put their Bibles away. The Bible tells you that if you lie, you will not be welcome in the new world. And people who read the Bible know that. And then they watch these Republicans get up there and every day tell a ball-based lie.
2: Yeah, and you don't in, need the our, Bible to tell you that, by the way. I mean, I, every, every right. society that has ever been discovered, you know, pre literate societies, Aboriginal, Indigenous societies, people who, who have never been exposed to what we would call organized religion, human beings know lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, killing is wrong, cheating is wrong. Uh, they get it. I mean, you know, we don't need the Ten Commandments. This is, babies know this. Other mammals, dogs know this. You know, you give too much food to one dog and not enough to the other. All right, that's not fair. Right. And we used used to teach our children cheaters never prosper until
6: Nixon actually cheated and prospered. And and the Republican Party has been cheating and
2: prospering ever since. There you go. There you go. Well said, Larry. Larry, thanks a lot for the call. Stick around. And welcome back, Cindy in Houston, Texas. Hey, Cindy, what's on your mind today? Hey, how are you? I'm I'm just, thank you.
0: I'm just really glad on what you're talking about today. It's something that's actually, it means a lot to me as far as you're bringing this up, Christianity. I have some young adults, and I also know other young adults as well. And they turn away from Christianity. And the reason why they turned away is because they have seen those that say that I'm a Christian, but yet say, oh, Trump is the best president while at the same time turn around and hurt those that are at the border. There's no love or no compassion, and that's what Jesus is. And to see this Christianity out there without that love and that compassion, which is what Jesus stands for, is very hard for me, even me as a 55-year-old woman, to even to accept. Yeah. I grew up in a very religious home, very much. And so, you know, it's just hard to understand how, how it's happening. And it's weird, and it's confusing, and it's very, very sad. But I understand the reason why the young adults are turning away is because they understand what's going on. And it takes takes a lot of us that know what Jesus is to stand up against the hate and the evil that's
2: out there. Which is what the churches are standing for. In the name of Christianity, <laughs> Cindy, I completely agree with you. I continue to call myself a Christian if anybody asks, because <laughs> I want to claim the teachings of of this guy in the Bible, who's you know described mm-hmm. as Jesus Christ. I think those teachings are useful. I think they're important. I think they're meaningful. They are personally meaningful to me. But I can tell you that most churches wouldn't want me as a member
0: <laughs> because I'm, well, yeah. and and and, um, and I'm the the, the the same thing for me as well. And I don't go
2: to church anymore
0: on Sundays. Yeah. I just I can't. You know, it's hard. It's hard to fathom and to see when Trump was in the White House to see that to see people that I even know. And relatives, it's very, very confusing. And yeah. so anybody, anybody that's listening to anybody that's listening to you right now, if you feel like I do, just hang in there, and and um, you're not you're not by yourself because it is very hard to understand. I think
2: the point pendulum's going to swing back, Cindy. If it doesn't, we're going to end up like Europe, and churches are just going to be ceremonial places.
0: You're absolutely right, and that's exactly where we're headed.
2: Yeah, but I think that mm-hmm. there's a good chance that the you know there there are denominations that do embrace the actual teachings of Jesus, Christian denominations, and right across the board, from Muslim mosques, uh, uh, Jewish Mm -hmm. synagogues, Louise and I, for years, uh, would sit Zazen. You know, there's a Zen, a Zen group. There was a Zen group here in Portland that we used to go sit with every Sunday. Nobody mm-hmm. says anything, right? You just go in, you sit down for a half hour, just be right. there with everybody. Not at all religion, you know. Right. I, mean, I suppose right. it's a religion, exactly. but, but, but it was like, you know, it fulfilled, it met our need for a sense of spirituality. I think people are yearning for that, and there are groups that will fill that void. Cindy, I've got to move along, but thank you for the call. You said it so very, very well. Thank you. Richard in Huntsville, Texas. Hey, Richard, what's up?
7: Oh, thank you very much. This is a good segue into what I want to talk about. Uh, let me paint some credibility for myself, if you will. Um, I have a history degree, Sam Houston here in Huntsville, 2005. Graduated a history degree and minor in political science. because about a half a mile from my house. There's a historical marker about my aunt, who I remember very fondly and very vividly. Who was instrumental in getting the 19th Amendment passed. There was a documentary about her a few weeks ago on PBS, about an hour and a half. Her name is Minnie Fisher Cunningham. I don't know if the name rings a bell, but Google if you will. Anyway, what I want to say is the only thing we learn from history in America is that we refuse to learn anything from history. Ah, Well said, Richard. Well, thank you. Let me give you three points to back it up. Prohibition slash war against drugs. Prohibition, Mm -hmm. we made millionaires out of thugs. The war against drugs, we're making billionaires out of thugs. That's number one. Number two, the Vietnam War slash Iraqi War. Yep. If they don't know democracy, then we can't grow democracy. Both right. of those countries didn't have a clue what democracy is, and here we are in there, having our soldiers, having our fellow Americans, die for what they don't even
2: understand. Yeah, Stanley McChrystal, the General McChrystal once said to me uh, in in we met in Washington D.C. and he said, "We can't kill our way to victory in Afghanistan." We couldn't do it in Vietnam either. You can't occupy a country. Okay, you know, <laughs> that's a great lesson of 1776. People don't like being occupied. Yeah,
7: that, that we haven't learned. Yeah, Very exactly. We, we refuse to learn anything from history. And number three, and more importantly, and, and currently, fascism. Fascism, in its infancy right now, is so parallel, its infancy in the 20s and the 30s in Europe, especially, yep. specifically, Germany. Yep. And people cannot see the, the high parallels. They need to take a lesson in history. However, like I said, I do have a degree in history, and I try to talk to these people, and they always go to what about-ism, what mm. about this, what about that. And it's like, you're talking fiction. And it's it's so, you can see what's going on with people saying, oh, yeah, what, biden's a pedophile and that tom hanks is look this is what the russian this is putin's russia countering all of the disgusting stuff that is real
2: yeah no i agree and it's not just putin by the way we're seeing we're seeing saudi trolls and iranian trolls and north korean trolls and increasingly trolls just from good old-fashioned white supremacist groups and it's a terrible thing richard thank you for the call Bob in Portland,
8: hey Bob, what's up? I think we should stop thinking about a virus as always a bad thing, and think about spreading the virus of compassion. The virus of compassion to take all the people that are talking on your program, represent a lot of people in their community, and approach it on on a a two-phase basis. The first one is practical. There should be a way that somebody like myself can move to a state where it would matter and run for the state legislature. And we can do what they did 40 years ago and just do it back and we could do it better. Because if we have, we have more people and we have the resources to do it, it just needs to be focal.
2: You know, the push localized. that they're doing right now is to get people on school boards. And school boards are, you know, one, one of the more common career tracks essentially for somebody who ends up in Congress is They start with the school board then they go from the school board to the city council then they go from the city council to you know and it just goes on you know and eventually they're governor you know so you know you don't need to start at the level of congress
8: well you got to start somewhere yeah and and since we've got the numbers and they get it by gerrymandering we should be able to turn it around somehow to make it so that uh enough of the people who feel about compassion whether they're Christian, Muslim, whatever. They come from all parts of the world. We are unique in this country in in how it's all put together. And we are fighting for our lives, the difference between it just being rich and poor or inclusive and exclusive, the way you put it. And that's basically what I wanted to say.
2: Yeah, well, you said it well, Bob. Thank you very much. Jerry in Federal Way Washington. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Well, uh, thanks for taking my call,
8: Tom. But. here we've got uh, enormous inflation on the real estate uh, price, right? And Which a is going to translate
2: people, into uh, property tax inflation in a few years.
8: Yeah, well, it already has, and I know people that are paying more in property taxes than they did in house payments when they bought the
2: house. Yep. Yeah, this is why so, yeah. it's it's just. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why property taxes are so high is that back when public schools were being rolled out in the late 1800s, early early 20th century, white people who controlled political systems wanted to make sure that poor communities, particularly black and, and Hispanic poor communities, continued to have crappy schools. And so they said, you know, or that they could have superior schools. And so it was like, hey, you know, we'll fund our own schools. And thus we've got this property tax system that's just crazy. I mean, do you know in Ireland there's no property tax? You own your property. You own your property. So here in the United States, because of the property tax, we don't actually own our homes. The federal or the state government owns them, and if we don't pay our rent every year, which is called property tax, they'll take it away from us. You think you own your property? You don't. I frankly think we should do away with property taxes. I think they're they're regressive. I think they're terrible. Uh, You touched a nerve.